0: Hey Kingdom Roots listeners, thanks for joining us for another episode. Today we have an audio from a talk that Scott did recently at the North American Christian Convention think you're really going to love it. But before we jump in there, I just wanted to let you know if you really enjoy the things that we talk about around here on Kingdom Roots on a regular basis, then you might be interested in studying with Scott through Northern's Master's of Arts in New Testament degree. It's a great program. I'm actually a student of it and would love to answer any questions that you may have about it. You can um, learn more at seminary.edu slash mant or send me an email at crobbins at at seminary.edu and love to um, be of any assistance that I can. But I bring that up because we have the deadline that's quickly approaching on July 26th for that program. So if you're interested in it at all, um, check it out, ask me any questions, and we'd love to have you in our next round of cohort that we have coming up. But thanks again for joining us. Hope you enjoy the episode. And without further ado, here's the episode. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have the first part of a talk by Scott on developing a culture of generosity within the church.
1: This morning, I would like to develop further the thoughts from yesterday, um, on building cultures in our churches that reflect the vision that God has for us in the church. And I would like to switch topics from uh, status, social status, uh, slaves and free to one that Paul uh, is not talking about directly but is clearly implied and that is rich and poor. The slaves... Uh, were at a low status, and the free had a higher status, of course, and then there's citizens about, uh, from whom very few of the early Christians seem to have derived, but it was about status. And one of the important uh, status categories of the ancient world, as it is in our world, is about being rich and poor. And I want to address this topic this morning because of its significance in the Bible, And because of its absolute significance in the American church, where uh, everyone in this room, at some level, is affluent compared to other portions of the world. So I'm not going to try to make you feel guilty, and I'm not going to exhort you to vote for Bernie Sanders. Uh, This is not about politics. This is about the church and how the church responds to people of a different socioeconomic status. And um, uh, I'd like to start with a little bit of story uh, to get this going, and then I want to turn to uh, the the New Testament. We're going to end up with Paul uh, trying to create a culture of, of generosity and hospitality in his churches. And this is a theme that is largely neglected in pastoral theology and largely neglected in people who study the Apostle Paul. I grew up in a home where my father was a public school teacher in a small farming community in northwestern Illinois, and I knew from the time I was about nine that I was on my own. Uh, that my father wasn't going to be able to, he wasn't going to make enough money to do a whole lot of things for me. Um, I played golf as a kid. I, I, delivered paper, I delivered a paper out, got up at, this is normal for me, from the time I was nine, I got up at 4.30 in the morning and delivered a paper out. And then I came home and made my own breakfast uh, in a cast iron skillet with bacon grease. And my mother ne- survives never creating a fire in the, in the kitchen with my two sisters. And then I went to the golf course all summer. And my mother said if I went to the golf course and I came home for lunch, she'd make me lunch. But if I stayed at the golf course, I was on my own. And I putted uh, for money with my friends. And sometimes I got Tootsie Rolls, and sometimes I got a hot dog, and sometimes I paid Tootsie Rolls and a hot dog. So I I learned as a young child that I was going to have to make ends meet. And so I, I didn't grow up in any affluence. My children grew up in a lot better world than I did. When I was doing a PhD, I was admitted to the University of Nottingham to study with Jimmy Dunn. I was given a Rotary Scholarship, and it was the only possible way that I would ever be able to pay the tuition necessary to do a PhD. But we realized while we were there it was going to be very difficult to make a one-year scholarship last for a minimum of two years. And we were doing our best, eating soup and living on very little. And one night we got a knock on the door from our pastor, who was a priest at the Anglican Church, a wonderful evangelical priest who became a professor of missiology named John Corey. It's pretty rare to have the pastor knock randomly on your door. And we thought, what in the world, what have I said theologically that I'm in trouble with the, with the Anglicans down the street? And he came in and he said, my wife and I have discerned that you and Chris uh, could uh, not have enough financial wherewithal to make it through two years, uh, and I think this was as much prophetic uh, discernment as it was anything else. And he said, we would like to pay for your your, uh, time to stay in England to finish your PhD. And he says, we only ask that you try to pay us off and that someday you do the same for other people when you get the opportunity. So I'm I'm here today because of the generosity of an Anglican priest who discerned uh, financially that he could help us out when we needed it. When I uh, finished my PhD, or came close to finishing, and I was offered a job to teach at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School to teach New Testament. And uh, I got to the school. We, got, we, we moved into our uh, uh, townhouse in July, used every dime we had to pay off, you know, to give the advance payment for a month And kind of wondered what we would do, but uh, I had a friend from seminary who was painting houses, so I painted houses for a month, and it was miserable to paint white uh, in the middle of 95 degree weather in Chicago in the summer with it blinding your eyes, when I really wanted to be reading Greek New Testament and studying the New Testament, but I had to make ends meet. And then came to I had to start teaching, but Trinity had this rule that they paid you at the end of the month, not the beginning of the month. So I had a whole month where I didn't have any money, and some friends came by our house one day and said, we'd like to pay for your month because we know it's going to be a difficult month financially. So uh, uh, I think I would have made it through that month uh, somehow, begging, but uh, I stand here as a professor and as a writer and as someone who's been teaching for 35 years because of the generosity of other Christians. Uh, I teach at a seminary, and Northern Seminary uh, needs uh, donations from people. You are in the independent Christian churches. You have supported Christian colleges throughout for a century as you've trained people to become pastors and ministers of the gospel. We need people to be generous. Your, can I call it a denomination? I know that's not right We'll, we'll just pretend like it's not for a while. Your, your tribe, I think you'll use the word tribe. That's now gauche language for denomination. Your tribe needs your generosity. Your local church needs your generosity. You think of ministers at different levels in churches, all dependent upon the goodness of God's people using their funds for the sake of the gospel. Yes, sometimes pastors and seminaries and Christian colleges make thoroughly goofy decisions, and you don't like it that they're using your money for some of those decisions. But this is a part of what it means to be generous in the church. And this generosity, especially toward the poor, is a characteristic of Judaism in the Old Testament from Deuteronomy and the prophets and Jesus and the early church that was not at all characteristic of the Roman Empire, of the Greeks or the Romans. They thought poor people were poor and that was just too bad. And they had no necessary compassion for the poor. Although the island of Rhodes, which is a beautiful little island off of Turkey and a Greek island today, uh, there's a famous speech by Dio Chrysostom about how generous the Rhodians were to the poor on roads but by and large you do not find an ethic of compassion toward the poor in the ancient world and when the Christian churches were being built throughout the Roman Empire and there was generosity toward the poor the Romans and the Greeks stood up and said this is weird. So I want to talk about this virtue in Christianity And I'm not going to ask you to give to Northern Seminary, though I'd like you to give to it, but I'm not here for Northern Seminary, I'm here for the Bible, and I want you to support your local church first, missions, schools, seminaries, and we have some students who could use your money if you uh, are so inclined. Leaders build cultures. Good leaders build good cultures. Toxic leaders build toxic cultures. Our responsibility as leaders in the church is to build a culture of generosity and hospitality toward the poor. Cultures are formed in churches when pastors and ministers and leaders and lay people both believe and embody generosity toward the poor. They don't just believe it, they embody it. They invite the poor to their houses, they consider ways to help the poor strengthen their own financial situation, they consider relief, and they give to the poor, and they have a heart of compassion for those who are in need. And I'd like to talk about that theme with you today and encourage you to become generous, more generous, to become hospitable, but most of all to work in your local church to become a a culture of generosity toward the poor in your church and in your community. I'd like to start with where the New Testament begins and where we as Protestants get nervous, and that's with Mary, the mother of Jesus, who when we talk about Mary in the Protestant and Evangelical churches, we tend to break out in a rash She's permitted in our churches only at Christmas <laughs> and in Christmas creches. And when, uh, let's say, you, you put up your Christmas tree in your creche early December and you wrap her up on January 1st, pat her on the bottom and say, now go away and don't show up during the year because we don't welcome you. That's largely true. But Mary set the tone for her son named Jesus and for another son named James. If you read James you know James cares a lot for the poor because his mother was one of them. And evidently his father disappears uh, and probably died. Uh, that's, That's the standard traditional view and I'm sticking with it until someone has a better theory. But Mary says this in her famous song called Magnificat. My soul glorifies the Lord And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful. Now, this next expression could be translated in two different ways, but I'm going to translate it the way I think it's most accurate. For he has been mindful of the poverty of his servant. We've turned this into the humble state. But this would have reflected the the Greek word tapenao and the Hebrew word anawim, and it refers to pious poor. It is not simply humility, it is poverty that leads people to trust in God, like Simeon and Anna in Luke chapter 2. He has been mindful of the poverty of his servant, and this is how my Bible translates this. From now on, all generations except Protestants will call me blessed. All right. How many times have you said, "I bless you, Mary"? All right. That's all I needed to say. That's just a little question. That's a dig. Uh, We have very little respect for Mary because we are so anti-Catholic. We've thrown her out with the with Catholic theology. But Mary, other than Peter and Paul, has more about her in the New Testament than any other person, other than Jesus and God, etc. All right. So. Mary deserves to be on her map. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm, and He's scattered those who are proud. Now, this will be riches as well. Proud in their inmost thoughts. And listen to these lines now. He has brought down rulers, she's going toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose with Herod the Great. 15-year-old, 14-year-old, 13-year-old Galilean girl going toe-to-toe with a murderous, mean-spirited Herod the Great. She could care less because God is on her side. He, He has brought down rulers from their thrones and he's lifted up the humble or the poor. He has filled the hungry with good things and he sent the rich away empty. Oh, she loved that. They were doing a jig in Galilee when she was singing this song. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendant forever, just as he promised our ancestors. The hand that rocked the cradle of Jesus was singing Magnificat as the theme of what God was going to do to her son, and one of the things he was going to do was bring economic justice to the poor, and it was going to turn economic justice against the rich who had oppressed the poor. This is the theme of Mary. Now, Zechariah, in this same chapter, sings a similar song, but we'll skip Zechariah, and we'll skip Simeon, and we'll skip Anna. They're they're singing largely the same song. And we go to John the Baptist, that crazy preacher uh, in the wilderness of Judea near the Jordan River. And I think on the far side of the Jordan River, not on the Jewish side of the Jordan River where the tourists can go because that's where the money can be made, but it's on the other side of the Jordan that John the Baptist sets up repentance shop for all the people who come to Jerusalem for uh, the festivals. And he exhorts people to repent and to be baptized in that river Jordan and to enter back into the land the way the children of Israel had gone through the Jordan and to set up a new kingdom of God for the people of God, including the poor. And John the Baptist is asked what repentance looks like. And John the Baptist is no abstract theologian. He gets right down at the ground level and he says, this is what you should do. In verse 11... In chapter 3 of Luke, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. The tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, what should we do? That is a good one. You know, you get the tax collectors. The IRS comes to your office and says, What should we do? It looks like repentance. John says, Don't collect any more taxes than you are required to. This is a radical vision because they lived off of the profits of ex- excess in taxation. Then some soldiers asked him what should we do? And because John the Baptist was a Mennonite he said become pacifist. He had his chance and he, and he flubbed it. And he said don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely and be content with your pay. So John turns the screws against ordinary people, against tax collectors, and against soldiers, and demonstrates that repentance has its own particular values and manifestations in different people's lives. So you say, well, that's all right. That's Mary. She's Catholic. That's John the Baptist. He's pre-Jesus. What about Jesus? Don't ask. He preaches his first sermon. And when you preach your first sermon after seminary, you got your best idea, or at least you think it's your best idea, and it's the best idea that motivated you when you were in seminary. And Jesus preaches from Isaiah 61, and he reads this text, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, Luke 4, verse 18. Because he's anointed me to proclaim the gospel to the poor. Interesting. Like my mother. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he sits down in the posture of a preacher. He doesn't stand up to preach. They sit down. They stand up to read Scripture, which is an important reminder, the most authoritative moment on Sunday mornings is when you read Scripture aloud, and then the sermon is downhill. Because that's the Word of God, and the sermon is an attempt to explain the Word of God. Jesus sits down they're waiting for His sermon, and He gives an uber-Episcopalian 10-second sermon. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the man. Now you say, I'd like to have a a few more details of what he meant by preaching the gospel to the poor. Thanks for asking, because he does this in the sermon in Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 23, because this is what he says in Luke 6. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. First, beatitude in both Matthew and Luke, is concerned with the poor. Now, we got a little bit of a theme here, don't we? Mary, Zechariah, Simeon, Anna, John the Baptist, and Jesus all care about the poor. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you. But Jesus is not done. He turns, unlike the Gospel of Matthew's Beatitudes, he turns from Beatitudes to woes. And it sounds like Leviticus 26 and 27 and Deuteronomy 28. Woe to you who are rich, he says. No commentary attached, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. So Jesus comes out swinging, as it were. His first sermon is from Isaiah 61, announcing that his audience is the poor. When he gives his powerful ethical sermon, in the, off, off the north end of the Sea of Galilee, off of Capernaum, he preaches that blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry. But it means that those who oppress the poor and who steal food from the hungry, they're the ones who are cursed by God. So we have these themes in Jesus, that Jesus developed a culture of generosity toward the poor. We don't really need any more, do we? This is what Jesus has called us to do, to be generous to the poor. And any Christian today in the United States, unless they're unemployed, but most of us have the opportunity somehow to develop benevolence toward the poor. We have the opportunity and we have the commission, we have the obligation to follow Jesus in caring for the poor and developing a culture of generosity and hospitality for the poor in our churches and in our communities. One of the great things of young Christians today, whom I call skinny jeans kingdom theorists, is that they care about the poor in the world. They may care too much about the poor and not enough about evangelism, but they cannot be faulted for their instinct of thinking that to be a Christian means to be compassionate toward the poor. Christians who are not compassionate toward the poor are not following Jesus. Jesus sees a man in trouble, and he responds. He's not looking for the poor. He's responding to those who are in his path who need mercy. So I would say we have Jesus is establishing a culture of generosity. We can't debate this. This is characteristic of Jesus. The early church developed the same thing, and so my second point is the early church was a culture of generosity. And there is those two beautiful passages at the beginning of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, we have this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, I think We could debate this for a long time about what this means, but i got to tell you, nobody really knows for certain. This could mean Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, or it could mean eating together, and it can mean either one, and that's where we can stand. It can mean either one. But they were probably eating together, and to prayer, everyone was filled with awe. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Notice what they said. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need, and every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Yesterday I talked about this this new book that has come out on building a multicultural church, and his last point, number 10, the 10th commandment, as it were, is it's about the meal, And inviting people into your home is a risky enterprise, especially for introverts. But generosity and hospitality go together, and churches that embody hospitality give off the message of generosity, and we need to be especially sensitive toward families in our churches who have more trouble financially than we do and invite them into our homes and share our goods because these sorts of things over time can help them financially and build fellowship in the church. In Acts chapter 4, we have largely a repeat performance of of what was said in Acts chapter 2. It says in 4.32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the Spirit of God was at work among them. Now, I believe that it is, uh, it is clear in the, as we read Luke into the book of Acts that this pattern in the early church was nothing other than a renewed application of the generosity and hospitality that was established by our Lord in Galilee as He practiced care for the poor. So the early church's behavior is not a surprising thing It is just a new thing because it's a new setting. After the resurrection, after Pentecost, the Spirit of God empowers these people and they form these churches that are characterized by generosity and hospitality.
0: Thanks for joining us today. Hope you enjoyed the um, beginning part of Scott's talk as he laid the foundation of why it's so important to uh, have a mindset and a a vision to be generous and hospitable and and care for the poor. We hope you continue to join us next time as we'll continue this second part of this conversation, as well as don't forget about the upcoming application deadline for the Masters of Arts and New Testament program I mentioned earlier. If you're interested, again, we'd, we'd love to have you join us on that. So uh, again, thanks for joining us. I hope you have a wonderful day and look forward to be with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.